This is Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast. I'm super excited to be speaking today with Joe Barnfrund, who oversees the Asset Value Investor Fund, which is in the midst of its third activist campaign in Japan. Daniel Lee, investment analyst at AVI and expert in all things Fujitech, one of the companies we're going to be talking about today, joined us as well. The fund, managed by Joe in London, was launched in 1985 and currently has roughly $1 billion in assets under management. In 2018, Joe launched AVI Japan Opportunity Trust, a $130 million fund that trades on the London Stock Exchange. And AVI also invests roughly $400 million in Japan through its main fund, AVI Global Trust. So lots of activity in Japan. Thank you, Joe and Daniel, for taking the time. Hi, Ron. Thanks very much for taking time to speak to us. Okay, cool. So today we're going to talk mostly about AVI's new campaign at elevator and escalator manufacturer Fujitech in, J- in Japan. Hopefully we'll learn a little bit about corporate mm-hmm. governance and the structure of cor- corporate balance sheets in Japan as well, particularly for our U.S. audience. On uh, May 12th, AVI issued a presentation urging Fujitech to perform a strategic review, including the exploration of merger options with competitors. You also want Fujitech to set up a nomination compensation Audit Board Subcommittee. Seems pretty normal for U.S., but perhaps not so much in Japan. Split the role of chairman and CEO, currently held by one individual. And other suggestions include a buyback program and divesting a portfolio of equity stakes it owns in other companies. So let's start with the equity stakes. You'd like to have Fujitech divest stakes in a variety of different companies. And um, seems like this is a common push for activists at Japanese companies. I've been following Dan Loeb's third points campaign at Sony to divest some stakes in companies it owns there. Uh, I think they divested the stake in Olympus where uh, Value Act has a directorship, but mostly they uh, haven't been doing what Dan Loeb's asked them to do at, uh, at Sony. Uh, why do you think it would be a, an, an, a something that, uh, that Fujitech should do and how much of uh, the investment, I guess, is in these stakes? Okay, well, if you look at it, um, Japan is fairly unique when you compare it to markets around the world in the sense that so many companies in Japan hold equity stakes in other businesses, other companies. Mm -hmm. And this harks back to um, the post-war period in Japan uh, when Japan was rebuilding itself and friendly companies took stakes in each other to support them and to cement commercial relationships with each other. Mm-hmm. So this has been a, a legacy of, of that era, and it, it's seen very important, very importantly in Japan from a cultural perspective, to be loyal to um, companies within a particular industry grouping, and you demonstrate that by owning shares in each other. Mm-hmm. And even banks would own shares in their customers as a, as a means of sort of cementing that relationship as well. Mm-hmm. Since the corporate governance code. Um, has come into place and the stewardship code four or five years ago, uh, that relationship um, structure has been coming under pressure from the regulators because it's not in the interests of uh, shareholders. It's not in the interests of, um, it's, it, it doesn't maximize returns on equity. It's, it's basically dead capital that, that's sitting there and it prevents um, outside investors by that I mean investors from outside that cozy grouping from interfering or from seeking um, seeking more uh, advantageous shareholder returns. So it's not a good thing from, from a corporate governance perspective. So increasingly, shareholder activists have been focused on uh, balance sheet efficiency in Japan, 
And there are really two aspects to that. The first is um, abundance of idle spare cash sitting on balance sheets. Mm -hmm. And the second is what we call these cross shareholdings or strategic shareholdings. Mm -hmm. And the regulators are keen to encourage companies by saying that you don't need to have cross shareholdings in order to have a commercial relationship. You should be able to have one without the other. Joe, just to interrupt, I was struck by a comment by Institutional Shareholder Services in another company you were involved in, Tokyo Broadcasting System. And in its uh, report, it said that that it was the TBS, the Tokyo Broadcasting System investment portfolio, which is mostly unrelated unrelated to its Mm. core business, that was driving the company's strong results. And that that surprised me. It seems like uh, those kind of situations are immediately targeted in the U.S. Uh, when the, the core operations were, are, are you know, uh, maybe not doing that well and hidden by the investment portfolio. Is that, is that like common in, in, I mean, like, is, that, is that part of the issue at Fujitech or? It is, but, but TBS is a very extreme example. It's extreme in the sense okay. that the value of its strategic shareholding portfolio is worth as much as the entire market cap of the company. Mm-hmm. And then the operating business is dwarfed really by the investment portfolio. So that's why ISS point out that really the fundamental value in TBS is in the balance sheet assets rather than the core business. In the case of TB of Fujitech, um, the the situation is not as extreme. They okay. have uh, shareholdings on their balance sheet. It, it doesn't make up a massive proportion of the overall value. Cash mm-hmm. represents a bigger proportion of the value, but mm-hmm. still it's, it's cash that could be doing something more productive. And that's really the idea here. I remember the situation with uh, uh, Starboard's Jeff Smith in the US uh, targeted Yahoo because its investment in Alibaba was, right. was hiding its underperformance and he was able to do massive change there, eventually got that company sold. So, But I, I wonder yeah. how many of these kind of situations are in Japan. So I wanted to talk about corporate governance um, uh, at Fuji Tech and if you could kind of give us a, a sense of uh, how this fits into the broader Japanese governance landscape. So um, uh, you want to see them set up a you know, separate nomination, remuneration, and audit board subcommittees and split the role of chairman and CEO. And I was, someone had suggested to me that uh, only 2% of Tokyo Stock Exchange companies have audit, nomgov, and remuneration committees. And so anyways, but I feel like the Abe administration's stewardship and governance codes want to encourage these kind of structures, correct? Or... Or, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, us in, in the other developed markets in the world are pretty used to having those kind of structures um, with the three separate committees. Uh, it's not, a, as you say, a common structure in Japan yet, but it's, mm-hmm. it is increasingly an area in which um, activist shareholders are focusing on. Because again, it, it all boils down to the fact that the existing board structures consolidate power into the hands of few, or in some cases, in, in, into one individual. Mm-hmm. The uh, boards become, the directors become box-ticking um, machines. There isn't any rigorous corporate governance going on. And that, that is not in the interests of uh, shareholders. If you recall, that the, the whole object of the corporate governance code, really, is to promote the interests of shareholders. Mm-hmm. Because for years in Japan, it was the interests of other stakeholders that were paramount and shareholders were relegated all the way down, down the table. Mm-hmm. And so um, there are a number of ways that that can be achieved. 
you can have better capital allocation of policies, you can return cash, you can buy back shares, you can do all that. But at the heart of the problem is, you know, who are the stewards? It's, it's, the, it's the directors. And if the directors don't have enough um, power mm-hmm. to challenge an individual, then that's not a good situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's definitely very interesting. If you, maybe you could explain, there's uh, one complication. Fujitech does have a, an audit uh, committee, but it's, it's kind of a toothless audit committee, the way Daniel explained to me before. Um, they don't yeah. really have a vote, right? Or how does that... Uh, yeah, the, that's right. It, it is just there to board. oversee the board. It's there mm-hmm. to oversee the board, supposedly, mm-hmm. but they don't have any voting power. So it's, it's a strange Japanese structure mm-hmm. um, that has existed for many years. But again, it's not a, it's not providing any oversight, and that's why those those structures are coming under challenge now. Okay, so let's talk about uh, you want to see Fuji Tech consider a strategic review, including the exploration of a merger option with competitors. First of all, I was struck when I saw that. The first thing I was struck with was, you know, I had done a feature I want to say early this year about this Japan's new restrictions on foreign ownership, and I thought, mm. huh, they can actually ask, uh, su- suggest that the company consider a strategic review and maybe and not come under the regulatory regime. But we'll get to that in, in a bit. But uh, but anyways, why, why do you think they should uh, consider that? Who do you think would be interested in, in buying it, particularly in, in this uh, you know, coronavirus uh, pandemic environment? Well, as you say, it's a long presentation. But mm-hmm. um, at the heart of the argument that we, we present is really the fact that when you compare Fujitech's uh, valuation to its global peers, mm-hmm. it appears to be materially undervalued. Right. Um, and some of that can be explained uh, by corporate governance issues, mm-hmm. and in particular, the, the, the presence of a poison pill that mm-hmm. prevents people from taking it over. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of it can be, can be um, explained by more operational and strategic issues. So the mm-hmm. fact that we argue Japan, uh, Fujitech's been undermanaged, it hasn't maximized opportunities to increase margins per se or to, to maximize opportunities in different markets. Mm-hmm. And as a long-term constructive shareholder, which is very important uh, mm-hmm. for foreign activists to be seen at, to be in, in Japan, we wanted to highlight a whole range of um, factors that collectively contribute to this undervaluation mm-hmm. and to encourage the company to look at all of them. Mm-hmm. So there are balance sheet stuff and corporate governance stuff that can be addressed fairly easily if they have the willing to do so. But the core operational and strategic stuff is more of a longer-term project, and that really requires you know, deep analysis of the company's strategy. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we're trying. By highlighting the various areas where we think that the company falls short, we're just highlighting the areas that should be studied uh, by the company. And I think this would be fairly standard in most countries and companies in the West. You know, in seeking to maximize shareholder value, um, conducting strategic reviews to make sure the business is operating at its greatest possible capacity is fairly routine, I would have thought. So it's not necessarily a strategic review that would conclude in the sale of the business. It's, uh, uh, it could be what, a divestiture of assets or something like that as well? Or? It could be um, a, a change in approach to manufacturing their, their, their products. Mm-hmm. So you could okay. have, for example, elements of their production that are currently done in-house. You could see that outsourced more, mm-hmm. effic- more efficiently and cost-effectively. You mm-hmm. could see greater, greater degree of standardization across their products rather than mm-hmm. have 
the high degree of customization that they have. You could have different avenues open in different markets, um, China being one, for example, where they have opportunity, which I don't think they've maximized. Mm -hmm. So um, the strategic review could focus on any of those areas. There would be interest, we think, from other industry players or from private equity Mm -hmm. funds to take a stake. It's a very, very interesting industry Mm -hmm. uh, because the attraction of these elevator companies is not so much in the business of installing elevators, but it's in the maintenance and upgrade contracts. They tend to provide very long-term, stable, secure income streams. Yeah, we've been following this uh, the ThyssenKrupp in Germany right. and the uh, auction of the elevator business yeah. and all this stuff there. So, so it seems like a lot of interest in them of late. So, okay, so I got to go the the most uh, favorite subject uh, related to Japan, and I'm going to work on I'm working on a feature kind of looking at this and the angle that I'm going with. Let me know if if uh, you agree is that the these uh, national security uh, ownership rules that the Japanese government is implementing. Initially, there was this kind of perception in the Western press, particularly. Um, and I think in the Japanese press as well, uh, in, in some parts of the Japanese press, that this was intended to discourage foreign U.S., U.K. activist hedge fund managers from entering Japan and, uh, right. um, and things like that. So from everything that I've seen over the last like, couple of months, it seems like there's uh, potentially even more activism in Japan than in the U.S. going on right now, that the, the investors are not discouraged. So explain, you, you feel like the, the presentation that you put together, you don't have any worries that this would come against the restrictions of this Japanese national security regime. And I guess if you were, well, let's, let's just start with that. Well, the short answer is no. Um, okay. This doesn't contravene anything in, in the regulations, principally mm-hmm. because we're not submitting any proposals here. We right. are highlighting to the public, to all shareholders and other investors, uh, where we think the um, shortcomings are in, in the company, and that's perfectly acceptable. Mm-hmm. But let me just explain. You know, I think this has been blown out of proportion to an extent, the, these mm-hmm. new uh, regulations. Mm-hmm. They're not designed... Um, although this was certainly the impression we got early on, but the clarification points to the fact that they're not designed to prevent US, UK, European foreign activists or engaged shareholders uh, from engaging with with companies in the ways that in the ways that we all are. It's really to pre- prevent foreign governments really from getting hold of sensitive industries and sensitive businesses. Mm-hmm. And okay. To that end, regulated foreign investment managers, such as AVI and and the other activists, have an exemption from these requirements to to seek approval or to notify of of any stake that they build in these companies, subject to a couple of provisos. But essentially, provided we're not intent on proposing that either ourselves or a related party be appointed directors, Mm-hmm. Or we're not intent on proposing submitting a resolution that they should that a particular company should dispose of a core business mm-hmm. or a core asset. And, then we get we get an exemption. And by proposing, you mean like submitting a, a binding proposal a formal, a formal on the proxy proposal. on the company's proxy, yeah. right? Yeah, that's right. No, yeah. that seems like uh, yeah. So. Um, I was actually on the phone with some folks at, at Oasis Management, that Hong Kong-based fund that does a bunch of activism in Japan. And they had actually nominated one of their own candidates, somebody that works at Oasis as part of their slate at, a, at Suncorp, this other Japanese company. And they yeah. explained to me that they, it was a 
fairly quick process to get approval through the new system to get that person yes. agreed to on their slate. Apparently, you don't even need to go through that process if you're only nominating um, non-affiliated directors, so people that don't work at your yeah. fund, um, but because they had somebody from their own fund, they needed to go through yeah. it. It was fairly... Uh, you know, easy, and they got a, the person approved, and they their slate won uh, the election in April. And um, sure. so, anyways, uh, I'm just uh, I was I was surprised that uh, somebody even tried to nominate one of their own candidates. So, okay, well, but, I, you know, this is the other thing that's important because they the regime. You know, if we didn't get the exemptions and we had to go and seek pre-approval for what mm-hmm. what it is we wanted to do. Um, it's it, as I said, it's not really designed to prevent this kind of activism. So if mm-hmm. it needs the pre-approval, we've been led to believe, and what you say about Oasis confirms this, that the, regula- the regulators um, would be quite amenable to this kind of engagement. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that leads me to my final question. I appreciate you taking all the time to speak with us today. So back to Fujitech, is it possible that if Fujitech doesn't respond to some of the points you made in your presentation, you know, I think it's it sounds like it's too late because the meeting of this year's AGM is at Fujitech is coming up next month. But in 2021, would you uh, consider submitting a binding proposal of some sort, you know, maybe ones that would not go against the Japanese rules you know to try to press your point have you guys done that before well yes we we would consider submitting mm-hmm. shelter proposals um in the 2021 annual general meeting mm-hmm. we have done it before we've submitted proposals to tokyo broadcasting back mm-hmm. in 2018 and we did mm-hmm. Tekoku seni in january of this year so yeah we've mm-hmm. done proposals our preference is always to have a constructive, more private dialogue with management rather than take it, take it out into the open. Mm-hmm. And it's only really where we find we're not making any progress that we seek to have a more public debate. Mm-hmm. And the avenues available to us are either we do something along the lines of what we've done with Fujitech, which is to make our arguments public, to try and mm-hmm. seek support from a broad shareholder base, but not actually take um, the question, the issues to the actual shareholder meeting, mm-hmm. or we can do it but by way of submission of formal proposals to the general shareholder meeting. So mm-hmm. if we'll see how this dialogue goes over the next 12 months. Mm-hmm. If we find that the company take us seriously and we start seeing signs of progress, then possibly we don't need to submit proposals next year. But if, on the other hand, we find we're getting nowhere and they need more uh, pressure put on them, then absolutely submitting proposals remains a very viable option for us. Okay, great. So thank you, Joe Barnfriend. This has been uh, the Activist Investment Today podcast, and I'm your host, Ron Earl. And uh, thank you, Joe, for taking the time. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Good to talk to you.